0: We finished chapter 18, but it is surveying the remaining land, so we'll go back just a little and then move ahead. Lord, we thank you for this time uh, that we can look in your word and find comfort there and find admonition. Even in the Old Testament, you've told us all these things, even these allotting of the tribes, it's all very important to you, and it has lessons for each one of us. So we ask that you'd bless us, especially as we wind up the book of Joshua today. And we realize that many scholars equate it with the New Testament book of Ephesians. So we might just, after we finish this, just take a quick look at Ephesians. But um, we ask that you'd bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've seen then about giving the inheritance of the land and allotting it. And it was all by the lot. That's what allotting means. You know, man throws the dice, but God calls the shots. And it's amazing to see that the most exciting part of the land came to Joseph and Judah, these special people that we read about in Genesis. So it said in chapter 18, just before we start, The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. This was the central point until finally uh, it became Jerusalem after David took that city from the Jebusites. But that's a little farther on in the book of Samuel. Then the whole congregation assembled at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. But they remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, that had not yet received their inheritance. So the two and a half tribes had already received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. And I want you to see that in this map, fixing the boundaries. Do you see that half of the top here, see Ramoth, Gilead, and Manasseh? So half of Manasseh is in the promised land, and half of it is on the east side of the Jordan. See this Jordan River coming from Galilee and on down into the Dead Sea. And then sucketh. and then you see Gad is over here and Reuben, remember they decided, they said, please, Moses, give us this land. We have a lot of cattle and it's wonderful grazing land and very lush, but they didn't realize that when the Assyrians and others would come from the north down here, they were north of it. And they would be the first ones hit in the battles. And they did. It was hard on them. So anyway, then today we're going to see that the tribes that were left, the lot fell to the children of Joseph. So we see here Joseph from the Jordan to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up to Jericho through the mountains of Bethel, then went out from Bethel, passed along to the border of the Archites at Adaroth. And so the children of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, took their inheritance. You see where Manasseh and Ephraim, they're the children of Joseph. And you see their inheritance is where Shiloh, Shiloh's um, right in the middle of Ephraim's lot. And then a little further, we see all of this. Benjamin is right below Ephraim, and Simeon is a part of Judah. Because Judah's land was so huge. And the lot came by the size of the tribe and Judah was a large tribe, so they got more land. So Simeon was a smaller tribe, so it's incorporated. Part of its land is in Judah. So now we see to the west is Philistia. And there was a very interesting, I guess it isn't in here about Philistine, that these Philistines, they were from the Aegean Sea. Some place up in the Aegean Sea, they were seafaring people that had swift boats. They tried to get Egypt and were repulsed, but then they began to take where Gaza is and they began to settle. But that's where the Philistines came from. They were seafaring raiders, really. And then they settled as they came and raided down here in Gaza. And so this became Philistine territory down here on the seacoast. And that's where problem is today. They want to call it the Palestinians. They aren't that at all. See the difference between Philistia and Palestinian? Because Palestine, there never was a place called Palestine. There never was a people. The Romans, as you remember, after they destroyed Jerusalem in 135 AD, they decided to change things and call the land, the land of Philistia, Philistines. And they couldn't pronounce Philistine. So they called it Palestine. And so these really are Arab peoples. And the Arabs have millions of miles of land. Why they can't absorb these people into their land? They don't want them. When we see what God is going to do, it's interesting. Verse four of 16, the children of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim took their inheritance. Then it tells the border of it. But these people, Ephraim and Manasseh, did not, verse 10, drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. You know, what did God say? You're supposed to wipe them out. They will corrupt you. Well, this is what, when the book of Judges is a very sad book after Joshua's time. So then there was a lot for the tribe of Manasseh. That's in the north, the firstborn of Joseph. And so the rest of Manasseh, then verse 3 about Zelophehad, the son of Hepha, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh. Remember, we read about him in Numbers 27. He only had daughters. And so the daughters came near to Eleazar the priest and before the rulers saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us inheritance. We want our inheritance, we don't have brothers, but so they promised us now that we'd have an inheritance. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten portions fell to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. And the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Mishmethath that lies east of Shechem. And the border went along south to the inhabitants of En Tapua. We don't know where these places are. Maybe you can see them on the map. But I do see Jerusalem here and Benjamin and Ephraim. So you can more or less see that, that the northern tribes are in the north. Naphtali is in the north. Asher, and remember in Jacob's dying promise, and in Moses' dying promise that Asher would dip his foot in oil and that there would be abundance from the sea. So he was on the sea coast up here in the north. Well, they found a lot of gas in Asher's territory. Then Zebulun was next to him. And the place Megiddo is in Zebulun's territory, where the final battle, this is a huge plain that is a wonderful battlefield that many battles have been fought there. And it's in the land of Manasseh, the west part where Megiddo is. And Issachar's is up there too. Then Ephraim, then Dan, then Benjamin, then the Philistines, then Judah and Simeon. So we see then Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh are on the east side of the Jordan. So that tells about the dividing of the land. So we aren't going to go into all of that except... Said that verse 12, the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of the cities that were in their property, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but didn't utterly drive them out. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you gotten us but one lot and one portion to inherit, since we're a great people inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you're a great people, then go up to the forest country, clear a place for yourself, and there in the land of the Perizzites and the Giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. Now this meant that they would, on the wheels, that as the chariots would go along, they would put spikes out on the wheels that would just tear apart anything that the wheels would hit. They have chariots of iron, both those who are of Bethshean and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. See, with the Lord, the Lord said, I'll fight for you. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And so the land was subdued before them. And so Joshua said to the children of Israel, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers had given you, the seven tribes that hadn't yet received their inheritance? Pick out from among you three men, so 21 men, and I will send them to go and Check through the land, survey it, and write it down, all down, and they'll divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts, bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance on the east side of the jordan which moses the servant of the lord gave them then the men arose to go away and joshua charged those who went to survey the land saying walk through the land survey it come back to me that i may cast lots for you here before the lord in shiloh so the men went passed through the land wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities and they came to joshua at the camp at shiloh then joshua cast lots for them in shiloh before the lord And there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. So then the inheritance of Benjamin is mentioned. Then the inheritance of Simeon in chapter 19. The second lot, the first lot came for Benjamin. The second lot in chapter 19 was for Simeon. So Simeon, as we see, was part of Judah. The inheritance of the children of Simeon verse 9, was included in the portion of the children of Judah, for the portion of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of that people. Then Zebulun, and you can see Zebulun down here, Uh, the third lot came for the children of Zebulun. Their border went to the west, and so it included all the cities that they had. Then the fourth lot came for Issachar, and then the fifth lot came for Asher. And then the sixth lot came for Naphtali. This verse 32, the children of Naphtali, according to their family. See, God arranged where each of these tribes would be by the lot. He determined the lot about their border and all. Then the inheritance of Dan, the seventh lot came to him. And so... That's the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan. Then verse 49, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. What was Joshua going to get? According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, for Timnath Sarah in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. These were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. Now then in chapter 20, there's got to be six cities three on each side of the Jordan. Now here they are in this picture, the cities of refuge. And also the cities for the priests were here around this area. So nobody, someplace in Dr. Ryrie's notes, they were only 10 miles from where a priest would be, so that some kind of spiritual help could be for them. But also, they were not very far apart. If they had killed someone accidentally, Speak to the children of Israel, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, we've read about this, that the slayer who kills any person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of the city, they'll take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then, if the avenger of blood pursues him, and they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but didn't hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer if he's determined to be not guilty, may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, Kerjath Arba in Hebron in the mountains of Judah. See, so this is a very mountainous land, except along the sea coast. And on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward, and so uh, from the tribe of Reuben, Rameth and Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, Golan and Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who sojourned among them, that whoever killed any person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So then the Levitical cities are brought forth next. They're scattered throughout the nations, 48 cities with pasture lands. They're scattered for 48 cities, and nobody in Israel was more than 10 miles from a Levitical priest. To the children of Aaron, he gave Hebron with its common land. And then it mentions to these, each of the children of Aaron and grandchildren, Kohath, Merari, Gershon, all these people that we've read about in the book of Numbers, All the cities, verse 41, of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. Every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. Thus were all these cities. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Do you think any good word which He has spoken to the church will fail? See, it tells us about how faithful God is. He came through with it all. Not a word failed of any good thing, which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. So when we read in the New Testament about the rapture, God promises these things to us. He promises that someday he's coming to catch us away. And we don't know about it. We don't know exactly when, but not a word will fail that he has promised. It will all happen for us, just as he said. So then, here's Joshua's farewell messages to the two and a half tribes. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. See, they're over here on the east side of the Jordan. He called them and he said, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge What was their charge? That they were to come across the Jordan and help them fight and win the land and leave their children and their flocks and their land on the east of the Jordan. He said, you have not left your brethren these many days, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren on the west side of the Jordan, as he promised them. Now, therefore, return. You can go back across the Jordan. Go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. This would be east of the Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment of the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him. With all your heart and with all your soul, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan, westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, "Return with much riches." to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver and gold, bronze, iron, with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, just a little north of Jerusalem, So to Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession. I have to mention here, it's the land of Canaan. So in all of the commentaries, and they call it the land of Palestine, it is not the land of Palestine. Just cross that out in the commentaries and put Canaan. There's no land of Palestine, never was. There is a land of the Philistines down here on the coast, but never Israel. But Israel was to be given the land of Canaan. So I've had to mark out Dr. Ryrie, Dr. Well, they all, I mean, I'm just amazed that this is pervasive all through all the writings of all the, the scholars. And why they do this is just what they've been taught, I guess. So the children of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh returned departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they possessed according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan, on the side occupied by the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against these three and tribes. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. And with him ten rulers, one ruler from each of the chief houses of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of a house of his father among the divisions of Israel. So these people represented all Israel that were sent. So they came to the children of Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead. They spoke to them saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery! Is this that you have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed, this Baal Peor, until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? But that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it shall be if you rebel to-day against the lord that to-morrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of israel nevertheless if the land of your possession is unclean then cross over to the land of the possession of the lord where the lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us but do not rebel against the lord rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the lord our god did not achan the son of zerah commit a trespass in the accursed thing and wrath fell on all the congregation of israel and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity then the children of reuben Children of Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion or in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account but in fact we have done it for fear for a reason saying in time to come your descendants may speak to our descendants saying what have you to do with the lord god of israel for the lord has made the jordan a border between you and us you children of reuben and children of Gad. you have no part in the lord so your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the lord Therefore we said, let us now prepare and build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but it may be a witness. Underline that. This altar that they built was for a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, here is a replica. It's a replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but it's a witness between you and us far be it from us that we should rebel against the lord and turn from following the lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings for grain offerings for sacrifices besides the altar of the lord our god which is before his tabernacle and when Phinehas, the priest, and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, children of Gad, children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Then Phinehas, the son of eliezer the priest, said to the children of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the rulers, returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them to battle, to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness for it is a witness between us and the Lord God. Chapter 23. Now it came to pass, a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, I don't know how long this was, that Joshua was old, advanced in age, and Joshua called for all Israel and their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. He was a 110. So I have hope that maybe... (laughs) <laughs> if the Lord Terry, some of us might reach that age. I don't know. So he said, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I've cut off as far as the great sea westward. That would be the Mediterranean and the lord your god will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the lord your god has promised you therefore be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of moses lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left and lest you go among these nations these who remain among you you shall not make mention of the name of their gods nor cause anyone to swear by them you shall not serve them nor bow down to them but you shall hold fast to the lord your god as you have done to this day for the lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations but as for you no one has been able to stand against you to this day One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he's promised you. Therefore, take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else, if indeed you go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges. Do you see how this can apply to to people today? In business arrangements, and marriage arrangements, there'll be a scourge on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land, which the Lord your God has given you this day. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and in all your souls that not one good thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you, and not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he's destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord, you need to read again when you go home, Deuteronomy 28 again, because the conditions of blessing and the conditions of cursing, it's the same thing. So when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord, your God, verse 16, which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land, which he has given you. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, their judges, their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river. Now the King James says the flood, but most of these translations say the Hebrew word means the river, which would be the Euphrates, on the other side of the river in old times. And what did they do? They served other gods. So Abraham was an idol worshiper. He was a moon worshiper. See, they worshiped the moon, and his father did, and his grandfather. They were idolaters. But see, God called Abraham, and Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham left the land of his birth and didn't know where he was going. But he believed the Lord and he came to the promised land. So he said that I will bless you. So anyway, he has done that. Dwelt on the other side of the Euphrates in old times and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. See, we're leaving out a lot of very interesting story about their history in Genesis. But he wants you to know this much. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt. And according to what I did among them, afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites." So forty years, the Amorites would be all the Canaanitish people and on the east side of the Jordan too. The Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. This would be on the east side of the Jordan. But I gave them into your hand, Og, that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose to make war against Israel. Moab was up the coast a little bit. The Moabites and the Ammonites, they always were inveterate enemies of Israel. But so Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam. Now this is in Numbers chapter 22, and fascinating, 22 up through 24, with a lot of prophecy in there about Balaam prophesying things. He says, I will see him, but not now. A star shall rise over Jacob. That's a prophecy about Jesus that would come out of Jacob's family. So there are many wonderful things that... Balaam said. But he couldn't curse what God had blessed. Uh, and he sent in called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. And that's what made Balak so mad. He said, oh, I've hired you. I've paid you a lot of money to come and curse these people. And now here you've blessed them these three times. That's a wonderful story, I think, those three chapters. Then you went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. And when he says hornet, I think he means a literal scourge of hornets. Very painful. And not try to say it something else, like somebody's army. No, I'd hate to have a million hornets landing on me, wouldn't you? (laughs) So I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you didn't build, and you dwelt in them. You eat of the vineyards, and olive groves which you didn't plant. Now therefore Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Underline that. So do you see what they were doing in Egypt? And even before, Rachel, when she came down, she stole her father's idols. So these people, they had idolatry in their blood, seemingly. They couldn't keep from being idolatrous. She hid them under the saddlebag, you know, So even Rachel, the mother of Israel really, the beloved one of Jacob. So what did they bring out of Egypt? A lot of the gods. They said, where is this Moses? He's been up on the mountain getting these commandments and we haven't seen him. We don't know, maybe a wild beast got him. Make us gods we can see. Take off the old golden earrings. So he made them gold and said a calf jumped up. Well, that was what the Egyptians worshiped. Apis the bull. They just couldn't get it out of their system. The only time they got idolatry out of their system was when they were sent to Babylon, the seat of idolatry. And it's never been a problem with them since. The worst place in the world they were sent to be slaves of the Babylonians in that idolatrous place. And now, today, you go into a Jewish synagogue. It's very plain. You don't find any symbol or anything about an idol. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Now, that brings me to this paper that I printed out for you. It just came in Dave Hunt's magazine. It's called Irreconcilable Differences, excerpts from Calvin's Dilemma, God's Sovereignty versus Man's Free Will, and soon to be released by Dave Hunt. I thought it was really wonderful. The Calvinists say that man doesn't have a free will. Well, choose you this day whom you're gonna serve. If you can't choose, you don't have a free will. But God made man in his image. God has a will. He gave man a will. And for the Calvinists to say this is just blasphemous, really. So it says, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will choose to serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord, serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then when you see the next book, Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, as wicked as you could be, they turned away. So Joshua said, verse 22, to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they buried him, buried him, not burned him, they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath serah which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground, which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph." And see, what did Joseph say? don't leave my bones down here in Egypt because I know that the Lord is going to give you the promised land. And when you get there, I want you to take my bones with you and bury them in the land that God has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron died, and they buried him in a hill that belonged to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. All right, now then, I want to just see about this The apparent tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will has been a point of study and discussion. I'm not going to read all of it, but just a little of it. And sadly of contention among sincere Christians for centuries. Some have taken the approach of C.I. Schofield, and this is what I grew up thinking, but it never satisfied me that these are two truths, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. They're both true, and it's like a railroad track, and we can't understand it, but someplace in the great distance they join together. But that's C.I. Schofield that these two truths that must be both accepted but cannot be reconciled. Both are wholly true, but the connecting and reconciling truth has not been revealed. That's what Schofield said. In apparent agreement, James Gray, the past president of Moody Bible Institute, suggested that no one finite mind could hold God's sovereignty and man's free agency equal at the same time. How necessary, however, that both be duly emphasized. Likewise, William Pettengill wrote, God insists upon his sovereignty and also upon man's responsibility. Believe both and preach both, leaving the task of harmonizing with him. In a similar vein, A.T. Pearson, although a leading Presbyterian, declared that both the sovereign will of God and the freedom of man are taught in Scripture and that if we cannot reconcile these two, it is because the subject is so infinitely lifted up above us. (laughs) We can't do it because it's just too ethereal for us to understand. Thus, the last great invitation in God's Book is an appeal to the will. Our a Tory agreed that we should not try to explain away the clear teaching of the Word of God as to the sovereignty of God and the freedom of the human will. Unfortunately, neither Calvin nor many of his followers today have been willing to accept both sides of this biblical teaching. The result has been devastating in its consequences for the gospel, that man can only reject Christ. He cannot accept and believe in Him unless he is sovereignly Regenerated by God or unless God gives him the gift of faith to believe now see that's so wrong That's what they teach Calvinism refuses to accept what so many great evangelists have recognized as vital. Edgar Mullins expresses very well the essential balance that's missing. Free will in man is as fundamental a truth as any other in the gospel and must never be canceled in our doctrinal statements. Man would not be man without it, and God never robs us of our true moral manhood in saving us. The decree of salvation must be looked at as a whole to understand it. Some have looked at God's choice alone and ignored the means and necessary choice on man's part. Kenneth Talbot and Gary Crampton assure us that the sovereignty of God is the most basic principle of Calvinism, the foundation upon which all, including Christianity itself, is built. Lorraine Bettner says, the basic principle of Calvinism is the sovereignty of God. Such fervor for God's sovereignty is commendable. However, Calvinists have mistakenly made God the effective cause of every event that occurs. Whatever is done in time is according to God's decree in eternity. But would a holy God decree that evil that fills man's heart and the world today? Would he decree this evil? Surely not. Calvinism denies to man any real choice concerning anything he thinks or does. C.H. Spurgeon referred to a class of strong-minded, hard-headed men who magnify sovereignty at the expense of human responsibility. The Calvinist mistakenly believes that if a man could make a genuine choice, even in his rebellion against God, it would be a denial that God is sovereign. Thus, God must be the cause of all sin. Beginning with Adam and Eve, Bettner argues, even the fall of Adam, and through him the fall of the race was not by chance or accident, but was so ordained in the secret counsels of God. That unhappy conclusion is necessitated by a concept of sovereignty that's required neither by the Bible nor by logic. We have noted the admission by some Calvinists that man is free to respond to God. At the same time, however, the doctrine of total depravity requires that he can respond only negatively and in opposition to God. Of course, that's not freedom at all. Philip Congdon points out, Classical Calvinists may talk about man having free will, but it's a very limited freedom. That is, a person may choose to reject Christ, all people do, but only those who have been elected may choose to accept him. This is no free will. Are the open invitations to trust Christ in the Bible actually a cruel hoax? I don't think so. Are all people free to put their trust in the Lord Jesus as personal Savior for their sins? Yes. That is why the call to missions is so urgent. How can there be any real freedom of choice if only one kind of choice can be made, and that one which has been decreed eternally? To call this free choice is a fraud. It's, however, the only freedom Calvinism can allow. Arthur Pink favorably quotes Denham Smith, whom he honors as a deeply taught servant of God. He said, I believe in free will, but then it is a will only free to act according to nature. The sinner in his sinful nature could never have a will according to God. For this he must be born again. Nowhere does the Bible support such a statement. And this is one of Calvinism's most grievous errors. Were Abraham and Moses born again, regenerated? Isn't that a New Testament term? What does Smith mean by a will according to God? Even Christians don't always do God's will, a desire to know God. Surely all men are expected to seek the Lord while he may be found. That God promises to be found by only those who seek him must imply that the unregenerate can seek Him, nor does it help the Calvinist to say that man can only will and act according to his sinful nature and against God. How could it be at God's will that man defy His law? If sinful acts are admitted to come from genuine choice, then we have the same challenge to God's sovereignty that the Calvinists cannot allow. Either man has a free will, or his sin is all according to God's will. As we have seen, the latter is exactly what Calvin taught, and many Calvinists still believe, making God the author of evil. Could it be that Adam's nature was actually sinful, though God pronounced him good when he created him? How else, except by the free will, can his sin be explained? The Calvinist escapes free will by declaring that even if the sin of Adam and Eve was foreordained and decreed by God, Pink argues, God foreordains everything. I guess when I was in my 20s, I came across some pink things, and I knew instinctively how wrong he was. God foreordains everything which comes to pass. His sovereign rule extends through the entire universe and is over every creature. God initiates all things, regulates all things. Then why did Christ tell us to pray, Thy will be done on earth if all is already according to God's will and decree. It's fallacious to imagine that for God to be in control of his universe, he must foreordain and initiate everything. In fact, it would deny his omniscience and omnipotence to suggest that God cannot foreknow and control what he doesn't foreordain, decree, or cause. Here again, Calvinists are trapped in contradictions. Another leading Presbyterian theologian A. A. Hodge recognized the severe consequences of that extremist view of God's sovereignty. Everything is gone if free will is gone, he said. The moral system is gone if free will is gone. At the same time, however, he declared, foreordination is an act of the benevolent will of God from all eternity, determining all events that come to pass. So then he ends it, you limit God. Why would an infinitely holy God ruin his own creation by purposely creating sin? Why invent the elaborate story of casting fallen angels out of heaven? Why cause mankind to sin in order to forgive them? How would that glorify God? Instead, in Calvinism, God becomes like the person who sets a forest fire so he can discover it, put it out, and be a hero. It also turns God into a fraud who pretends that Satan, though God's own intentional creation, was his enemy. How absurd. Yet Calvinists persist in this unbiblical and irrational doctrine, which they imagine defends God's sovereignty, but actually diminishes it. If God did not foreordain all things, then he could not know the future. God foreknows and knows all things because he decreed all things to be. On the contrary, God does not have to decree human thoughts and actions to foreknow them. He knows all beforehand because he is omniscient. So i made enough for each one of you to have one of these just keep in, just to read over. I mean, it's not quick reading, but it's something that we need to consider because As Dr. Ryrie said, this is a major teaching in America today. This was a major teaching of the colonists that came here. And many horrible things happened because of this kind of teaching. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. Bless us in Jesus' name. Meet all of our needs, Lord, and help us to serve you with a faithful heart and a loving heart in Jesus' name. Amen.